Good morning. Today's scripture reading is found in Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. I'll be reading from the NIV. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tom. I want to thank Grace, too. She has had a big week. Uh, graduated on Thursday. Graduation celebration Friday. Led the singing at Don Harris' service yesterday and helped uh, lead us in praises to our Lord this morning. So we're thankful for Grace. Grateful, yes. Thankful for how the Lord has worked and is working in her life, and um, we will continue to pray for her. She heads off to the University of Georgia in the fall. So uh, let's go to the Lord again and ask for his help as we open up his word. Father, we read in Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. And like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces. Father, I confess that my heart is often hard like a rock. And it, it needs to be broken into pieces by the hammer of your word. And so I do pray, Father, if there are others in this room or watching online that are the same way. Father, may your word do its work on us today. May you with precision wield your hammer to chisel away the, the parts that are hardened toward you, toward your people, toward your work. Help us, Father, to be strengthened by what we read today in your word. I, I do ask that you would, like the crowd in Jerusalem, you would convict us. Father, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus in this passage. Help us to exalt him, to give him glory, to thank him for who he is and what he has done and what he's doing. Thank you that now he pours out his spirit on those whom you are calling. And that his spirit, your spirit, seals us and fills us for life. So Lord, we give you thanks. 
And it's in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Bridges occupy a pretty prominent place in our minds, right? Um, They even affect our daily life, so much so that there have been movies written about bridges, bridges bridges of Madison County. I've never seen it. Ladies, I I hear it's a ladies' film, so maybe some of you have seen it. Um, Bridge Over the River Kwai. I've never seen that one either, but I, I hear it's a masterpiece, right? There are even songs, Simon and Garfunkel's Like a Bridge Over Troubled Water. Bridges are important to us. Again, they occupy a pretty prominent place in our minds. Just 10 minutes from here is an important structure to me and my family. We depend on it almost every week. So if if you've ever been to Dawsonville, uh, you have relied on this, chances are, just like we have, right? It's the Amicalola Creek Bridge, originally built in 1930, rehabilitated in 1980. The Amicalola Creek Bridge serves to make life convenient for many of us, looking for the quickest way to and from Dawsonville. But let's say you spend all of your time in Pickens and Jasper. If you don't use Amicalola Creek Bridge, chances are there are plenty of other bridges in the area that you do rely on. Whether hiking or driving, bridges often, at the very least, make life more convenient. Sometimes they are more than convenient, they're critical. Sometimes bridges are the only way to span a path that is otherwise not crossable. And the text we're looking at today shows the Apostle Peter building bridges. We're going to see in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41, the very first sermon recorded after Jesus' ascension. In this sermon, Peter is going to connect three Old Testament texts to the audience there in Jerusalem that he was preaching to. And these Old Testament passages would would have been texts that the audience, made up of God-fearing Jews, as Luke will tell us, would have been familiar with. So I want to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me, if you're not already there, to Acts chapter 2. As you're turning, Peter is the primary speaker in this passage, in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. His focus in these verses is on the Holy Spirit, on Jesus, and on the crowd that he is addressing. The passage divides into three sections, where in verses 14 to 21, Peter will be showing how the poured out Spirit seals, fills, and points. The second section is is made up of verses 22 to 36. This section is Peter's main point of his sermon, and we'll see the crucified and risen God-man reigns, he saves, and he sends, S-E-N-D-S. The third section is found in verses 37 to 41. Luke tells us that Peter's sermon was used by God to cut to the heart some who heard Peter's sermon. And here we'll see that the called are convicted, they repent, and they receive. As I mentioned, the first point that we'll see in verses 14 to 21 is that the poured out Spirit seals, fills, and points. You'll remember from last week that Jesus had instructed the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. We saw that in chapter 1, 
verse 4. He had assured them that they'd be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That was in chapter 1, verse 8. You'll also remember from last week that the Holy Spirit came just as Jesus had promised. And the result was that the Jews who had moved back to Jerusalem from many different nations, they heard the mighty works of God being proclaimed in their own languages. The response to this true miracle from heaven was that some marveled, asking, what does this mean? Yet others mocked, saying, they are filled with new wine. This brings us to verse 14 of chapter 2. Look at it with me. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. Before we go any further, I want us to stop for just a moment to consider who it is that is preaching to this crowd. Less than two months prior to this moment, Peter, the man who has stood, raised his voice, and is addressing this crowd of what we'll learn later, Numbers well into the thousands. Less than two months earlier, this same man had stood, John tells us, around a charcoal fire to warm himself outside the trial of Jesus. And three times, probably in a very hushed tone, he denied being a disciple of Jesus when asked by a few servants. Not even two months before, Jerusalem was like a hornet's nest that had been stirred up against Jesus with all of the religious and political leaders plotting and scheming to have Jesus tried and crucified. On top of that, you had the crowds being worked up to a fever pitch against Jesus, calling for him to be crucified and for the murderer Barabbas to be freed. With all of this in the back of his mind, Peter was a man on a mission, and no religious group, no political structure, no concern of a radical and riotous crowd could deter him. So what had happened to Peter? Well, the Holy Spirit has come upon him in a new and powerful way. Peter, knowing the Scriptures, realized what the prophet Joel had prophesied hundreds of years before, and that at this moment it was coming true. We don't doubt that the Holy Spirit had been active in the world since creation and had been involved in the lives of God's people. But here in Acts 2, we realize the Holy Spirit has come upon Jesus' disciples and the apostles in a new and unique way. And Peter is one of the beneficiaries of this encounter with the Holy Spirit, and he is now a man on fire for the Lord. Peter, the man who was afraid of being known to have associated with Jesus less than two months before this moment, is now the man who is standing before the thousands and about to proclaim with a raised voice the good news of his Lord. He says, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And as he begins to speak, the first thing he does is corrects any misunderstanding among the thousands that are witnessing the move of the Holy Spirit among the disciples and apostles. To the mockers who had chalked all of what was happening up to the disciples and apostles being drunk, Peter says in verse 15, these people are not drunk as you suppose, it's only nine in the morning. 
So the third hour, as some translations say, or nine in the morning here in the NIV, it was known as a customary prayer hour. And in commentaries, they note that Jews would only eat after that. So in other words, if it was too early to eat, it was way too early to drink. Uh, I mentioned Grace is going off to Athens in the fall. Um, I went to the University of Georgia, um, and uh, some of you are saying, well, that's what's wrong with him. Um, I, uh, my, my friend, my roommates and I had this one place that we love to eat lunch, and, and because we like to eat together, um, we would have to go super early uh, to grab lunch, and so we would often go, like, bumping into the, the 10 o'clock hour. We'd get there, and they would open up and let us in, and um, we were usually the only ones there. And uh, so we would put our order in, and there was this fry cook who uh, was the, the meal preparer, right? And, and it's chicken tenders and fries, right? That's, that's what he's cooking. Um, and so sometimes in the 10 o'clock hour, 11 on the dot at best, he would have a beer in his hand, right? And, um, and so he would uh, throw our chicken tenders and, and fries in, take a sip of beer, and then pour some in the fry basket, in the fryer. And uh, without fail, his boss would come in, the owner of the place, and he would just get all over this guy for drinking so early in the day, right? And they would have the same conversation every time we were there. And so if a fry cook in Athens, Georgia, did not know that there was a time in the day that was too early to be drinking, Peter for sure knew that, right? And that's what he's pointing out to these people. He's saying it's way too early in the day. So whether Peter was being humorous or was offering a general rebuke, his point is this. Something else is happening here that can't be explained by alcohol. Having addressed the misunderstanding, Peter goes on to provide the explanation that would bridge the Old Testament to that moment in time when saying in verse 16, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Hundreds of years before this moment, the prophet Joel had spoken on behalf of the Lord that this day would come to pass. And it was here. This was the moment the Lord was fulfilling His promise and the Messianic age was being inaugurated. Quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32, Peter says in verse 17, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. By referencing the last days in verse 17, Peter was affirming that the Holy Spirit coming in power was the evidence that something unique had occurred in redemptive history. The appearance of the Holy Spirit was God's stamp of approval that Jesus' life, His death, His resurrection and ascension were the means by which He would save His people. One writer says this of, of this phrase, the last days. The last days then are the days of evangelical blessing in which the benefits of the salvation procured by the perfect life, death, resurrection, and glorification of Jesus Christ are freely available throughout the world. They are the days of opportunity for unbelievers to repent and to turn to God and of responsibility for believers to proclaim the gospel message throughout the world. 
Peter says, in the last days, God would pour out his spirit on all people. So does this mean every single person on planet earth would or will be saved and enjoy the gift of the Holy Spirit? No. What he means by all people is that salvation as signified by the sealing and filling and pointing work of the Holy Spirit will be available to all kinds of people. In other words, as we'll see throughout the book of Acts, whether Jew or Gentile, man, woman, boy, girl, slave or free, God's mercy and grace is available to everyone who trusts in Christ alone. So as a quick aside, let me take a moment to highlight yet again the inclusive exclusivity of the grace and mercy of God. Much has been made over the last few years of the so-called virtue of what some people will refer to as being woke. No doubt you're hearing about this more and more in the news and from people that you're having conversations with. There's also been much discussion over the need for the church at large to adopt and embrace what is known as critical theory. You'll sometimes hear it referred to as critical race theory. They say this is a so-called useful analytical tool for understanding the world and how it works. Let me just say that when we adopt, or if we should adopt, beliefs that are woke or embrace worldly ideologies like critical theory, we do so at great peril to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has become abundantly clear over the last few years that those who embrace these worldly ideologies, they're searching for truth like all of us are. They're looking for a worldview that will make sense of their lives and the world around them. The gospel has the answer, but they look elsewhere for something else. We've seen it over and over in the news as well as general observation how the worldview of wokeness and critical theory are bankrupt and will only leave those who adopt and embrace them frustrated and hopeless. The gospel is our guide because it shows us how God has made a way for sinners to know true freedom and to be brought onto equal footing at the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter makes this clear, as did Joel, that the gospel is inclusively exclusive. It makes room for all types of people, despite gender, race, and class. This is how the gospel of Jesus Christ is inclusive. Those who value the gospel, they would do well, we would do well, to reject wokeness and ideologies like critical theory. The gospel is exclusive because it teaches us that the Holy Spirit is not available to those who have not been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1:13 tells us, "In him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit." The gospel of Jesus Christ and wokeness cannot exist together. They are diametrically opposed to each other. And we, we see that in passages like Acts 2 and Ephesians 1.13 when we see that true power only comes to us when we are saved from our sin and sealed by the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, true equality. That's another word that we hear a lot about these days. Pastor Jeff preached on this recently. True equality is only available at the foot of the cross where all who have trusted in Christ alone and are sealed by His Spirit 
our own level ground. This group of disciples and apostles who the Holy Spirit has been poured out on, they were evidencing that they were sealed by the Holy Spirit as a result of their faith in Jesus. And as this passage develops, we'll see that there are two groups of people in Jerusalem in Acts 2, those who are followers of Jesus and everyone else. So the disciples and apostles, they were demonstrating their being sealed by their being filled. Peter was saying what Joel prophesied is happening here at this moment because the Holy Spirit was being poured out as Joel said it would be. And the significance of Peter quoting Joel 2, 28-32 is that he saw Joel's words as proof that the Holy Spirit has a singular focus in filling people. So what is that focus? It's to point to Christ. Picking back up halfway through verse 17, Peter says, Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. This evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out on these believers made clear that this thing that was happening in their midst was out of the norm. Joel says the evidence of the Holy Spirit would be prophecy, visions, and dreams. Yet the disciples and apostles, they were speaking in tongues. So why would Peter be equating Joel 2 with the events of Acts 2? It helps to distinguish between two types of prophecy. Generally, when we think of prophecy, our minds typically run back to the prophecy of the Old Testament. But Peter was referring to a kind of prophecy here in Acts 2 that is a little different. Prophecy can either be foretelling, F-O-R-E, as we often see in the Old Testament, or forthtelling, F-O-R-T-H, as we see here in Acts 2. Foretelling, like much of what we see in the Old Testament, is having insight from God into a situation beforehand and declaring it. Forthtelling is, is having knowledge of something that has already happened and you're declaring it. The link to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2 is helpful. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The prophecy that we are seeing here in Acts 2 is forthtelling through the tongues of various languages. So what are they prophesying? Verse 11, the wonders of God. It's true that we, as we progress through Acts, we will see other miraculous signs, but in each case, the point of the prophecy, vision, or dream will be to point to Christ. The work of the Spirit is to point to Christ. So people today will make claims of the activity and work of the Holy Spirit. And one way that we can gauge the, the validity and the truth of these claims is to always ask the question, is the claim of the activity and work of the Holy Spirit pointing to Christ? If not, it doesn't look like the activity and work of the Holy Spirit here in Acts and also in the rest of the New Testament. In verses 19 to 20, Peter goes on to quote Joel to show that the inauguration of the Messianic age as evidenced by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
is driving toward the great and glorious day of the Lord. Peter is proclaiming to those who are listening to him there in Jerusalem that judgment is coming and that they must be prepared. Again, this was a a crowd of thousands who were hanging on Peter's every word. I said there were two groups of people in Jerusalem, those who were followers of Jesus and everyone else. What you notice in Acts 2.5 is that these people who were listening to Peter, Luke tells us they were God-fearing Jews. So they were devout, they were religious, they were faithful, but they were lost sinners in need of a Savior. Peter tying the, the day of the Lord, what Joel will refer to as the great and dreadful day of the Lord, to their need for repentance. He says in verse 21, and this is how the Spirit points to Christ. Listen, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So with these Jews being abundantly familiar with Joel chapter 2 and with what they were witnessing before them with the prophetic tongues and with Peter demanding that they listen carefully to him, he has their attention. This brings us to our second point, the crucified and risen God-man. He reigns, he saves, and he sends his Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Again, he's asking for their attention. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. So these people are familiar with the work of Jesus. Verse 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, notice what Peter says here, you with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Maybe these people didn't hold a hammer, but Peter says they are responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross. After proclaiming to the crowd what the people were witnessing, Peter would now transition to telling the crowd why they were witnessing it. How would he do this? Just as the Holy Spirit points to Christ, Peter would point the crowd to Christ. Peter was showing the crowd the bridge that was spanning from Joel 2 to this moment at Pentecost that we see happening here in Acts 2. Jesus was the bridge connecting the Old Testament to the New. He was the bridge connecting the Old Covenant to the New. And the purpose was to bridge the religious Jews' understanding of Joel 2 to the Lord, Joel was referring to in verse 21. Just as he did in verse 14, Peter again calls for the attention of the people by saying, fellow Israelites, listen to this. And then proceeds to point the people to Christ so they would know who to call on to be saved. What we have in verses 22 to 36 is Peter covering who Jesus was by by showing that he was both man and God. Peter would cover what the God-man did by saying Jesus was accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. He would also remind the crowd how Jesus had been treated by those who saw and heard him. Instead of being received and revered, the, the people rejected Jesus. They turned him over to be crucified. 
And we see that in, in verse 23, one of the most stunning examples in all of Scripture of the mystery of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Even though God had foreknown and foreordained Jesus' crucifixion, Peter puts the blame squarely on these people by saying they put Jesus to death by nailing him to the cross. Why the God-man? Why the miracles? Why the crucifixion? Because in all of these ways, God was showing his son to be the Messiah. And Peter goes on to build two more bridges by, by quoting two psalms to show that Jesus was the Lord who saves. First, he quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, to show how God raised Jesus from the dead. Look at verse 24 with me. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I will not be shaken. For my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And Peter says, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. And his tomb is here to this day. Peter is, is reasoning that David was obviously talking about someone other than himself in Psalm 16. Because as Peter says in verse 29, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here today. You, you can hear him saying his corpse is right here in the tomb. So if Psalm 16 was not written of David, who was it written of? It had to be someone whose body would not see decay according to verse 27. So when did decay set in? Jews believed the corpse would begin decomposing on the fourth day after burial. So if you remember the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, you'll remember Martha telling Jesus that there would be an odor because Lazarus had been dead for four days. So if decay began setting in at four days, the person David is referencing in Psalm 16 would have to be someone whose body was in the grave for less than four days. If we go back to our prophetic distinctions of foretelling and foretelling, David was foretelling in Psalm 16. Look at Acts 2, verse 30. Peter says, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. He was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God had raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. See, Peter was building a bridge for these Jews to see the connection between the Old Testament prophecies they were familiar with in the crucified and risen God-man. The second Old Testament prophecy Peter quotes is, is David's Psalm 110. Peter has proven David was looking ahead to the resurrection of Jesus in Psalm 16, and he will now prove that David was looking ahead to the exaltation of Jesus in Psalm 110. Look at verse 33. 
exalted to the right hand of God, he, Jesus, has received from from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. By saying that David did not ascend to heaven, Peter is arguing that Psalm 110 was referring to someone other than David, namely Jesus. And in ascending to the right hand of God, Jesus is glorified by the Father and shown to have all authority over all things. And as the crucified and risen God-man, what does Jesus do with his authority? He pours out the Holy Spirit. Peter assures the crowd they are actually, in that moment in time, witnessing Jesus do that. Saying that Jesus has poured out what you now see and hear. And this brings us to our third point, the call. They are convicted, they repent, and they receive. We find preserved for us here in Acts 2, the, the first recorded sermon following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Peter, again, once fearful of being associated with Jesus, is now proclaiming loudly how lost people can be saved from their sin. The Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples and apostles, and in lockstep with the Holy Spirit, Peter is pointing these people in Jerusalem to Jesus. What is the result? It's astounding. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? God has given some in this crowd, some of those thousands, ears to hear. And the text says that they were cut to the heart. They were so convicted of their sin that they interrupted the preaching and called out to Peter and the other apostles to ask how they should respond to this good news. And I can speak on behalf of Jeff. Every preacher dreams of this kind of interruption. Peter gladly answers them on what they would need to do with the conviction that they are experiencing over their sin. Verse 38, Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we understand why Peter would exhort the people to repentance. They are to change direction from their sinful attitudes, attitudes that led them, as Peter said, to crucify Jesus. They were to change direction and and look to God through Jesus for forgiveness. This command to repent, it agrees with the command given by Jesus to repent and believe. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. But are we to understand that Peter is adding another requirement for salvation by saying repent and be baptized? This can't be because again and again in Scripture, forgiveness of sins is based on faith alone. We don't have time to go over these today, but but here's a list that gives us assurance of forgiveness only coming by faith and not being dependent upon baptism or anything else for that matter. So we have these passages, uh, again, John 3, 16, 36, Romans 4, 1 to 17, 11, 6, 
Galatians 3, 8 to 9, Ephesians 2, 8 to 9, Acts 5, 31, Acts 10, 43, Acts 13, 38, Acts 26, 18, and, and there are plenty of others. So why would Peter command these people who are seeking forgiveness to be baptized? The grammar in the original language lends this understanding. Repent, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of of your sins, and be baptized. The clear biblical teaching is that willingness to submit to baptism is an outward expression of inward faith in Christ. Baptism, as seen in Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, is a step of obedience taken by disciples who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. So baptism is, a, again, an outward sign of an inward change and therefore not a requirement for salvation. We said earlier that the gospel is inclusively exclusive, and we see that again in verse 39. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. It is inclusive in that it is for all who are far off. In other words, everyone who is not joined to Christ, but it is exclusive in that it is only for those whom the Lord our God will call. The sermon was not over, as Luke tells us in verse 40. With many other words, Peter warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Obviously, Peter is, is not saying that these people can save themselves by earning or meriting their salvation. No, he's exhorting them to respond by faith to what they've heard. Verse 41 reveals to us that the miracle of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the disciples and the apostles, it was now spilling over onto some of the crowd who had heard Peter preach. Look at verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. We don't know how many heard Peter at Pentecost, but what we do know is that the Lord our God had called about 3,000, and the New Testament church grew from 120 people to somewhere around 3,000. Acts 2 reminds us of the cooperative work of the Trinity, both seen here in this passage and in other places in Scripture. And it's really something beautiful and, and marvelous to behold. You have Jesus promising the Spirit in the Gospels. You have Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father who gave His Son authority to send the promised Holy Spirit. You have Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit on the disciples and the apostles you have the Holy Spirit who had sealed and was filling the believers, pointing to Jesus. You have the crucified, risen, and reigning Jesus, saving those whom the Father had called. And you have Jesus pouring out the Holy Spirit whom the people received as a gift. And as we progress through Acts, we'll see the church growing because of this pattern of the cooperative work of the Trinity. The Father will call sinners to repentance. Jesus will save them. Jesus will pour out his spirit because the Father has given him authority to do so. The spirit will point to Christ. Again, the Father will call sinners to repentance. 
Jesus will save. Jesus will pour out his spirit because the Father has given him authority to do so. The spirit will point to Christ and on and on and on. God was doing a marvelous thing at Pentecost by showing that the bridge that had been built to span the gulf between the Old Testament and the New and and the gulf between the holy God and the sinful man was none other than Jesus Christ himself, who's Lord and Messiah. So the question for us today is, have we, like those who were called in Acts 2, have we been cut to the heart And have we responded by faith to Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these marvelous words that we read in this text. Thank you for preserving this sermon of Peter's and the response of the thousands that you called that Jesus saved, who were sealed by your Holy Spirit and and filled with your Holy Spirit. And they would go on to to share this good news with others, pointing to Christ. And the Father would call others. Jesus would save. Jesus would send his Spirit. The Spirit would seal and fill And again, the church would grow and grow and grow until we get to this point in human history where countless churches gather together on the Lord's Day to worship the risen Savior, who's Lord and Messiah. We give you thanks for Him. We give you thanks for the Spirit. Father, it's my prayer that if anyone is here today who has not been sealed by the Holy Spirit, Father, it's my prayer that they would cry out, whether audibly or in their hearts, and that they would realize that because they're being convicted of their sin, you are calling them unto salvation. May they trust in Christ alone and be filled with your Spirit after being sealed by your Spirit. Father, as we gather around this table for those who are sealed by the Spirit, I pray that you would fill us with your Spirit. Help us, Father, in our remembrance of Christ around this table to be filled with your Spirit. Help us to go from this place sharing the good news of Jesus and seeing you do mighty and miraculous things in the lives of sinners. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by the power of your Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.